Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys interview. Conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get to my interview with Joshua Cohen, I wanted to let you know that we had a less than ideal connection, and so the sound quality is not up to our usual standard. I apologize for that. I did what I could to improve things in post-production, and once I reached the end of uh, my most definitely limited skills, I posted a message on our Facebook page asking for help. Nick, whose audio editing skills greatly exceed my own, graciously volunteered his time, for which I am very grateful. Thank you so much, Nick. And now, on to the interview. As regular listeners of the show know, when we feature interviews on the podcast, we are, they're usually with you know social scientists, policy analysts, uh, uh, journalists, people who've written a book about some specific thing involving American politics or policy. Well, Joshua Cohn, who's my guest today, he has written the book, and we're going to be talking about it, but it's uh, definitely something very different, unlike really any book I've read in, in quite some time. Uh, the book is called Attention. It was recently released, and it's this just really diverse collection of essays. Now, some of them are political, and those are the ones we're going to focus on in our conversation, but there's just a ton of other stuff. I mean, the history, culture, science, literature, just all sorts of things like that. And, and they're all put together oftentimes in ways that you would probably never expect. So it was a just a really fun and, and fascinating collection. And I'm just so pleased to have the author on. Uh, Joshua Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Sure. Uh, you know, and when I first started going through the book and preparing for our conversation, uh, it, it made me feel I actually hadn't felt in a while. I, I'm I'm a Generation X person, and so that means that most most of my cultural sort of reference are from that era. And when I was reading your book, I felt sort of the same way that I felt when I was reading when I first read some of the essays of David Foster Wallace, who's sort of a minor hero of mine. Um, you know, there are ideas that are just kind of, kind of coming out from all over the place, and they're connected in these just very different and, and, and fascinating way. And, and I, don't, I don't know if I have a question here, actually, but I wanted to put that out there because I guess I was wondering if, you know, you have any thoughts about sort of your approach to nonfiction, maybe even my David Foster Wallace comparison or, or, or something like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, well, I mean it's, it's flattering, and thank you for that. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Wallace, um, you know, is someone that, 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 uh, that I certainly, um, you know, came up admiring, though, um, though I will say, you know, his politics uh, aren't my politics, and, and maybe his approach toward irony um, isn't my approach to irony. Um, I, uh, you know, he, he, he tended to, um, shade into sincerity toward, toward the end of his life. And, uh, and, and I, I'm still trying to make my own peace with the idea of sincerity. I'm not, I'm not there yet. You know, I do see that I, I see the value of, of irony. And I think that's frankly a cultural difference, between, you know, um, a guy from the Midwest and a guy from, from Jersey. Um, and, uh, uh, in a lot of ways dealing with also different politics, uh, uh, you know, the the real thing of the piece is that, you know, I, I worked for Harper's as a new books critic for for years and um and Harper's was a place Harper's magazine was a place where Wall um, you know, came up and wrote a number of uh of his classic pieces for them, the cruise ship piece, um and uh most notably the cruise ship piece, the tennis piece. And um and the thing is is that he uh um you know, he kind of that was the golden age of, of magazines, let's say magazines before the internet kind of cleared all of this stuff out. And so I remember kind of reading those, you know, those old issues of Harper's and, um, and saying, you know, one day I too, you know, will, uh, uh will be able to write 12,000 word pieces for magazine <laughs> publication. And, and, and the truth is, um, I wasn't able to, and, and a lot of this book 
you know, sort of the, the secret history of this book is kind of coming up through a technological shift in the publication of, of, of nonfiction and, and kind of coming into writing um, uh, really after, you know, 9-11, uh, 20 years old, 21 years old, and, um, and kind of encountering a world that, um, that, that, that I didn't understand, certainly not the world I'd been trained for, and trying to begin negotiating not only like the practical ways of having a career writing the things I wanted to write, but actually, you know, more importantly, navigating the, the, the cultural shifts that are, that, that were underfoot and, and, you know, to the point of, uh, uh, how do you write on platforms where the reader has in many ways been, um, been made equal with the writer in terms of like, you know, being able to respond and interact with them. Um, how do you deal with, um, essentially, you know, the notion of facticity online, which is both, um, you know, bolstered by, by, by the information on the internet, but also opposed by the information on the internet. How do you, um, how do you deal with things that exist outside of the scope, let's say, or outside of the brief you have for the piece um, when, when uh, uh, constantly uh, editors are pressured to put links into your pieces that are constantly like bringing, bringing people away from, you know, the surface of your prose onto other people's prose. And, um, and also really, you know, how do you deal with the fact that people are now reading on the same platforms on which they're writing? And uh, and so there's always that tempt toward um, toward interactivity or at least toward um, uh, uh, toward commentary, and that that you know th- these were all questions that that frankly you know Wallace's generation didn't have to deal with, and that that my generation was the first to have to deal with, and and and, and I'm not saying I had come to any answers, but but a lot of this book is 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 the history of me attempting to to figure it out. Yeah, and in fact, the the final essay I think, which I'll, I'll get to uh, in a little bit here, because it's uh, it's a it's a fascinating piece of, of writing. It seems to me to kind of involve a lot of those things that that you were talking about just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we focus in this podcast on American politics and and policy, and there were a number of essays in your book that really directly involve politics as well. Uh, the first one. Uh, it's called the last su- the last last summer on Donald Trump and the fall of Atlantic City, which I think that's a good place to to start, uh, especially with your you actually have a, a connection with Atlantic City, correct? Yeah, yeah, I grew up there, and uh, up there. and you grew up there, and you right, you worked in a casino for a while as well. Oh yeah, yeah, I worked I worked at a number of jobs in in, in a number of casinos. Um, the, the only casino job, meaning casino floor job, I had was at uh, resorts. Uh, uh, where I was a coin cashier, or they called them at the time a slot cashier. But but I worked, you know, in 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 various other capacities, other casinos, and 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 all around Atlantic City, which is really, you know, the 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 largest city of an island of uh, uh, of four cities of Longport, Margate, Ventnor, and Atlantic City, and sort of worked up and down the shore, um, and and came. I mean, born in 1980, so a year after the first casino, which was resorts, opened. And then really saw, um, you know, Trump come in and and grew up, growing up with this idea of sort of Trump as this local, um, you know, this local mascot and comic figure. And so a lot of this, a lot of that essay that you're talking about is as much about my own experiences growing up there as an attempt to, um, if I'm going to come to any sort of reconciliation with, with the idea of the Trump presidency, or, or at least I'm going to come to, I'm going to accept the idea that this is just, I'm going to have to labor under, you know, under its decisions. Uh, it, it really required me to kind of first come to grips with, uh, with the kind of the world in which I grew up and, 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 and the world really is my parents, especially my father's, um, you know, business associates and the community in which I lived and what their own expectations for uh, in American life were. Um, and, and so the, the book is, or that part of the book is really kind of a study about, um, you know, what used to be called, let's say ethnic whites, um, which is obviously, which is a huge category that in Atlantic city would be Irish and Italian and, and, and Jews somewhere off to the side and how, um, and how they essentially perceived their city and how they kind of ran their city as this, um, as this segregated um, symbol of um, uh, or microcosm of 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 of, of capital of capitalism. I mean, the, the entire casino economy wasn't relegated to the casino floors. The casino economy was the economy of Atlantic City. I mean, I think there was one mayor in my lifetime who didn't um, go to jail or wasn't indicted. 
and uh, and uh, and so you know we had another mayor who disappeared from the job for a while, uh, and 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 was found kind of holed up <laughs> only only a few weeks later, uh, uh, in dereliction of his job. Um, you know, and and so it was. Uh, there there were a lot of questions that I really hadn't asked myself um, uh, when I had kind of come out of uh, of Atlantic City because all I wanted to do was get away from from the Jersey Shore. And truthfully, you know, uh, I'm I'm primarily a novelist, and I guess most people would think that you know a novelist would spend a lot of their time mining their early life or mining their autobiography for their fiction. And I I don't. I tend to actually mine any autobiography for my nonfiction and, and, and fiction is sort of its own kind of closed world of symbols to me. And, um, and I, I realized that, that this was this moment that it's, uh, 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 for me to sort of come to grips with a lot of, with a lot of ideas, uh, that, that I'd kind of taken for, that I'd kind of taken for granted. I mean, who were these people who were around me growing up and friends with my family who worked in this casino economy? Um, what did it mean that they worked in this casino economy? You know, what did it mean uh, for their own sense of living in a community, for their own sense of like wanting a functional city to live in, and uh, and yet continuing to work in this casino economy while the island got worse and worse, while they moved farther and farther down beach or moved off to the mainland, um, and then when they saw their model being copied sort of everywhere else with the, the legalization of Native American gambling and and with um, um, online gaming and you know offshore online gaming coming about they were unable to kind of change. And, and so this generation of people who were largely the, the children of immigrants, uh, almost entirely the children of immigrants, who had this deep concept of the American dream, um, were, were sort of involved in this enterprise that utterly hollowed out the possibility of that dream, not only for themselves in their old age, but for their children. And, uh, and I wanted to couple that with a history of Atlantic City at its origin. Um, you know, Atlantic City being the first middle-class resort in the United States, it was the place where you could reach by train from, you know, three of the major cities of the United States in, 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 in under two and a half hours. And it was uh, it was a, bo- a boarding house, a rooming house city where um, where essentially, um, you know, where workers could come and sit on the beach in the same way that wealthy people did at Newport. And uh, but this was a, a a a resort that was entirely developed as a um, as this, um, as this almost picture, you know, picture perfect fantasy of the American dream, where you would work in Philadelphia, or you would work in a factory in Camden, and you would come down for the day, and you would uh, stay in a boarding house and be pushed in a rolling chair by a, a black employee who, you know, only lives in the West Side in Atlantic City, and uh, 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 and. And you would parade yourself on the boardwalk, the world's longest boardwalk, the you know the great kind of promenade, showing off to others how you had arrived in this country. And uh, and there was such an element of theater and such an element of, of illusion in it that. Um, uh, uh, and yet, when I grew up and looked at those photographs, there was such an element of nostalgia, and yet nostalgia for a time that I'd never lived in. You know, I wasn't around for any of that. And I wanted to investigate what is this sort of nostalgia for. Uh, for times in which you hadn't lived, and and I, you know, I, and I felt it was sort of intimately connected with this idea of American greatness, this Trumpian idea of American greatness, and I wanted to get at, um, and I wanted to get at the roots of that. Well, you know, what what struck me, one of the things that struck me when I was reading this was uh, an earlier uh, work by uh, Neil Postman, uh, a book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death," which had a huge impact on me growing up, where he suggested kind of modern America was a lot like. Las Vegas, so another casino town, very glitzy and very insubstantial below the surface. And, and, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. But obviously, this book came out in the mid 80s. And today, though, it seems to me that that your sort of comparison, your metaphor of Atlantic City maybe is a little bit more fitting because, you, you know, there's that glitzy element, but there's a certain, I don't know, a certain cheapness, a certain desperation, a, a sense that it's all kind of falling apart at least that's what i i kind of felt from your essay and and i was wondering you know is that am i reading too much into this or is that is that your sense as well well i mean certainly atlantic city is falling apart i mean you know up until very recently it, it, it had for numerous i believe three or four quarters in a row the highest foreclosure rate in the nation um so you know it, it dealt with city that uh went bankrupt and um and was taken over by the state government um 
the mayor was effectively, I mean, though not removed from office, was effectively rendered powerless and, and things were turned over to state control. That's how, how badly in debt it was. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a city where, where really the most um, reliable lights on at night are on the boardwalk. And the boardwalk is actually uh, 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 the only, I don't want to say safe street, but it's the only safer street. And um, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, there's no doubt that there was this, um, that there is this interesting um, juxtaposition or, or tragic juxtaposition between the casinos with all lying the, uh, uh, which all line the ocean side, and then uh, and then the interior of the island, very thin island, you know, it's like a dozen blocks across, and 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 as you head toward the bay side, it becomes poorer, and you have this ambient light coming off of these, or you when these casinos were open, you had this ambient light coming off of this replica of the Taj Mahal or this, you know, uh, 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 this this kind of Caesar's you know palace sort of like you know Roman imperial opulence. And, and, and that the glow that it would cast would be the only thing that would light your, your, your way home were you walking on Baltic Avenue or, you know, a few blocks inland. And, and so it was, the, it was the juxtaposition between this, um, you know, this sort of uh, um, imperial pomp and then other um, destitution outside of it and the idea that you would never leave the casino, you know, the casino confines because you would be in a place uh, that, was, that, was, that was dangerous. You'd be, you, you would be in a place where you would not feel safe. Um, that, 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 that I think governed a lot of my childhood. I mean, I, you know, there was this idea of, you know, you stay inside of the casino because inside of the casino you're safe. And when you leave the casino, that's when you're like, sort of like tempting the street. And I think that, 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 that's a juxtaposition that, um, you know, that, that, that is far more, um, apparent in Atlanta city than in Las Vegas, which is, you know, just has much more room. It's not an island floating off the coast of America, you know, Las Vegas is, and also Vegas was built from scratch and, and, and in, in a lot of ways, and, and Atlantic city is really built on the, you know, ruins of a, um, uh, uh, of the, you know, again, the first, you know, middle-class seaside resort in the United States. And it was, um, and, and so there is a sense of, um, of, historic failure in Atlantic City, where uh, unlike, you know, Vegas, it's sort of like, you know, it has this, it has this rat pack kind of uh, atmosphere. Atlantic City has uh, uh, almost like archaeological strata of, of, of failure underneath it. And, and it doesn't take too, it's not, it's not too hard to kind of scratch that, uh, uh, to scratch, scratch away the, sur- the surface layers and really get at the, the bedrock of it, which is that it's still functionally, you know, a segregated city. It's still functionally an island. It's still functionally a segregated island, and um, and the, the people who kind of you know ran the place, ran it into the ground, uh, uh, all all lived on the mainland, uh, uh, meaning they didn't live anywhere near the city. And uh, and now that all the casinos are closed, uh, or, or very few remain open, all the pump properties are gone. While I can took over the Taj Mahal, the Taj Mahal you know got stripped down. Um, uh, these these properties now are just um, enormous properties that are rotting. And because the electricity is not on, because they're not running HVAC, it's just mold is growing everywhere. And they're, they're truly becoming um, our modern ruins. And, um, and, and, and walking through, trespassing into it, I don't know if I should be admitting on a podcast that I, that I did that, but you know, <laughs> I think they have better things to do there than press charges. But I mean, these things have become, to some degree, homeless encampments. Um, Anyone who can kind of slip in can 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 slip in and kind of sleep in a in, in a room or they can get into a room or in a hallway at the old Trump Plaza on the boardwalk, and um, and these things are now becoming um, uh, uh, I don't know they're, they're somewhere somewhere between like kind of horror movie sets and um, and 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 Memento Mori. Well, you know, and it's hard in reading this not to take this out a little bit further. I mean, it's pretty clear that there are these two Atlantic cities and that there's this tiny little area that's shrinking that that is is, is opulent and so forth. But even that's crumbling. But there's this this wild sort of area outside of that that's unsafe and, you know, and impoverished and so forth. And and I think it's impossible to read that and not think about, you know, two Americas, basically, and how what we're seeing in this country with income inequality and, and the decline in affordable housing and all that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that, 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 that is, is, is without a doubt the most, you know, apparent experience metaphor uh, of just being in the place. I mean, you, you, you feel two Americas. But what you also really feel is, is, 
is this idea that um, that the quote unquote safer place, or the truly safer place, you know, was really a, uh, uh, if we're taking that as a model for you know a a a, a better America than 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 one of like you know um, drugs and guns and unsafe streets, then what you're really talking about is is a belief in a casino economy, and that was the most interesting thing. It was the most interesting thing seeing people, um, you know, day after day while I'm like working in the cage of these you know, casinos, uh, people who are spending, you know, their entire paychecks because the idea uh, uh, in gambling, because the idea is that, you know, they're just one kind of tug on the lever away, or they're just like one chip put down away from, from having all their problems resolved. And in a way, like it, 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 there's an element of, um, you know, uh, th- there's the tension in American life, obviously, between this kind of sort of Puritan idea of, you know, of hard work uh, uh, and, and hard work and earning and saving, and then this idea of, of a casino economy, right? And obviously, uh, uh, you know, there were two temperance movements of the 19th century, right after they would tell you not to drink, they would also tell you not to gamble. But there was also this kind of strange, almost religious element, almost like a, a Calvinist element in the casinos, where it was sort of like, you know, I am secretly a winner, you know, and my number will come up and I will ultimately, I will ultimately win. And and everyone else is sort of the uh, uh, the, the disadvantaged preterite, but I know that my uh, that, that you know that my ticket is punched and that my ship is coming in, and um, and 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 to witness sort of an almost religious faith um, in that, in almost um, this this concept that that you know that I am a winner, that I will be proven a winner, and that I'm you know just you know one quarter or one dollar or one swipe of my you know rewards card away from being proven that winner. That was a, um, you know, that was a daily sight in, in, in my childhood and certainly uh, uh, multiple times a day when I'm working at casinos. And, um, and so the, the idea that, you know, two Americas is one way of thinking about it, but I really kind of see it, saw it as these were sort of, um, the casinos were models of the economy, uh, 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 models of the general economy, and that we really just exported the casino model um, uh, to the rest of the country. Where, uh, where essentially we're not going to build, you know, um, mechanisms for people to work for uh, uh, their wealth and save their wealth uh, safely, and um, and 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 provide social institutions and 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 welfare institutions. Uh, instead, we're going to uh, lotterize the entire thing, and we're going to turn this country into one of like uh, into one of like utter luck, you know. And and of course the and of course the luck is a you know is 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 a rigged game, and and I um and I think that a lot of the things that actually stop us in this country from building those institutions like universal health care, uh, just just to pick one example, uh, you know they're not really uh, uh, obviously to a degree they're 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 like you know congressional um you know apathy or or the fact that like you know the 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 insurance companies are you know have the best lobbyists. But uh, but I really think that there's something in the American character about um, you know that, that that believes in luck and that and that believes that this almost sort of gambling notion of life is 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 a fundamental form of life that um, that that allows people to feel most um, most I don't know engaged or enlivened um, and and I think that uh, uh, that there is an element of recklessness and a, uh, an almost a tendency towards self destruction in the gambling. Uh, community, if you want to call it that, that is the exact same I saw at Trump rallies, which is to say that the, the glee, the joy, the, um, the, the, the sort of like sanctifying terror of driving over a cliff and, uh, and, and seeing if you land safely. And that, and, 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 and I saw that, I saw that, you know, at the, at, at roulette wheels, I saw that at crap stables and, and, and I think, and I saw that at, at, at Trump rallies as well. And there was, there was an element of that terror that I think all of us can recognize the thrill of it, the the the, the risk, but there. Um, but 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 what what works recreationally, let's say, or what like is it should be, you know, available and and say and 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 you know, let's say, regulated recreationally is is not something that should have any place in our national politics. Yeah. Now you actually talked to a number of people from Atlantic City about. Donald Trump and his what what they thought of him and that sort of thing. What what sort of responses did you get from these folks? Well, I was interested in the you know in the inside in the inside stories, which are the stories that I grew up with. I mean, these were people who are are sort of living a um, 
you know, living this nightmare. I mean, imagine if all of the people that you worked with when you were 20 or 30 years old um, suddenly showed up in the White House. And these were, I, I mean, I don't know what your policy on profanity is, but imagine the biggest ass you worked with coming up. You know, we're suddenly, we're suddenly, you know, uh, 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 I think my father would get angry if I named names, but we're suddenly working as White House counsel, you know, or we're suddenly, you know, nominated as the, as the American ambassador to Israel. Um, I think that there is a, a, a um, going back to that source was going back to um, the stories of, you know, who, who these people are uh, uh, before they, you know, came onto the national stage. And, and those stories are, um, I mean, just, I, I, I needed kind of an office to work at because I didn't want to write at home. I took my, I took a, a, a corner of my uncle's office, my uncle commercial fisherman, but he also runs, uh, trying to set up an offshore uh, energy company uh, through wind power in Atlantic City, putting up turbines in the, uh, 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 in the water. And, um, and we can go through the whole history of how that's been filled by Chris Christie, but let's skip that for a second. <laughs> but just in, in, this one, in this one office where I was working, you know, every single employee had a, had a Trump story. Because it's that, I mean, it's that small of an island. We're talking 20,000 people really during the winter, you know, and uh, uh, off-season. And, and, you know, anything from I worked as a receptionist at a neon sign company that, you know, produced things for Trump and he never paid us, you know, to, to, uh, 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 to we had to dredge out the marina to, you know, accommodate his yacht. And it was an illegal dredging. But we do you know all of these kind of you know, small grifter kind of stories. And, and, and the truth is, as with all of those stories, and it's the same exact um, uh, glee that I was kind of getting at in, the, in, in, in my answer uh, about, about gambling and about risk. It was, you know, people start telling these stories and there, there's an unavoidable note of admiration um, in them. In the same way, you know, in the way that America has sort of always admired uh, a criminal. Um, and it's a part of the national character that, that needs to be, you know, that, that needs to be looked at. I mean, whether there's the hagiography surrounding the criminal in like a John Dillinger kind of way or, uh, or in a Billy the Kid kind of way when actually these guys were not so good, you know, um, or, or it, 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 it's a, 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 um, it's a belief, um, uh, a, it's sort of a wistful uh, acknowledgement that someone was crafty enough or brazen enough to get away with a crime. And, and, I, and I associate that response, you know, which always began with, let me tell you about a disgusting thing that this guy did that then ended with, um, with yeah, with a degree of, 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 of almost unmistakable admiration. Um, that, that was an interesting paradox, too. And, and, and so these two things, it was the, the sort of the, 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 the death wish uh, of gambling and the thrill uh, of risk. And then on the other hand, the, um, the scorn that, that is always tempered by admiration, if not ultimately uh, resolved in admiration. Uh, that were the two things that I think I, I wanted to get at because they define for me fundamental American conditions. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that you wrote about Donald Trump, I thought was really fascinating. Uh, you say in the book, uh, he can't ever gamble because he can't ever lose. I'd bet that Trump is barely even familiar with the table rules for the simple reason that he doesn't have to be. Having owned the house, he'll never tempt the house. All he can do is torch it. I was hoping you could talk, expand a little, talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think a lot of that had to do with, I mean, first of all, that had to do with some stories that I heard about, you know, people trying to get him involved in a poker game and how he would never become involved in a poker game because, um, you know, because he, he, he can't be seen to lose, right? And, 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 and from that story, it was just a reminder to me of, of you know, none of the people I grew almost everyone I, I grew up around. And I'm talking about uh, uh, you know people my parents' age, right? Um, were were employed by the casinos or, or worked you know as a vendor to the casinos or in some way associated with the casinos. And um, uh, uh, whether on the state side, like the casino control commission side, or with the or, or with the casinos themselves. So as as regulators or or, or or as casino employees, and the truth is is that none of them gambled. Now the people on the state side you know, couldn't gamble. And then the people who worked at the casinos couldn't gamble at their own casinos. So there are obviously like regulations involved with this, but uh, I'm talking, they never played those recreational games at poker people's homes. Um, these were people who uh, really did follow the drug dealers, you know, uh, wisdom of never doing your own product. And, um, and it sort of fascinated me that, um, that abstemiousness. And I always associated that abstemiousness with, um, 
with uh, 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 rectitude, and and yet now I realize it was um, entirely uh, uh, behavior that was conditioned by seeing all of uh, all of the wreckages uh, of lives uh, for which their work was responsible. And and the truth is, I associated that abstemiousness with 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 Trumps. I mean, a man who doesn't drink, um, uh, you know, how much can how much can he be trusted? <laughs> and so. Uh, 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 but but there 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 was also some some odd kind of correlation between the um, yeah the rectitudinous the abstemiousness of people who run these institutions uh, and the uh, and the people who patronize them. I mean, Atlantic City is, is full of bartenders who uh, who 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 don't drink. Uh, you know, uh, I you know in in many ways like a, 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 a it's like a, a your graduate school after AA is to go be a bartender at the Irish pub on St James. And uh, uh, where the bartender, um, you know, almost every evening at midnight pours himself a big bowl of Cheerios with blueberries and eats in front of the bar. Um, I, 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 I think that there, uh, there, there was also this element of the confidence man um, that, uh, that I found kind of pretty interesting in, in, um, in, in the Trump figure uh, that, that I, I found um, in the figures of people who were, uh, uh, you know, friendly with my parents. And this is difficult for me to speak about it. And if I'm kind of mumbling a little bit, it's really because, you know, I feel like this is intimate and I feel like people from home listen to this stuff. And I feel like, and, and, and so I, I don't want to sit around and accuse all of these people who are wonderful people to me in my childhood and were wonderful people to be around in school and in synagogue and in life and, um, and, and say that they were, you know, employed in a corrupt institution, uh, you know, uh, corrupting the lives of the less fortunate. Because on the other hand, they were hardworking people who were doing their jobs and supporting their families. But there was something in this split between, you know, the person who is, you know, um, who, who, who defines things tribally and the person who defines things communitarily. And, and, and I can't um, deny that, that in a lot of the ways I was raised and the lot of the I was raised among, it was about you do the job that you do to take care of the people who are important to you. But the idea of living in a larger community and, and about kind of keeping the threads of those fabrics strong and keeping those, you know, and keeping the, um, the general common wheel uh, uh, in heart and in mind was not, um, was not anything, uh, uh, was not anything they would ever think about. Another thing they would ever feel about. And, um, and, and, and certainly that was at a, that was at odds with, um, with the emerging politics of a post 2008 um, financial crash generation. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, about the sort of community aspect and stuff because it you you wrote uh, in that essay you write about uh, ethnic whites uh, and at one point you you make this interesting comparison. You say the Republican Party today is a caricature of the Republican Party in the same way that New Jersey Irishness and Italianness are caricatures of Irish Irishness and Italian Italianness, and I was hoping you could kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that there was, you know, there, there's always that, that that question. I mean, first of all, uh, uh, you know, Atlantic City does have this, you know, very defined area, the sort of, you know, um, more so Italian these days than Irish. But you have Ducktown, which is, you know, like a historic, you know, Italian neighborhood, and 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 it's on the exact opposite side of the city from. From the historic black neighborhood, and of course, Atlanta City is by far, by far, a majority African American city. Um, but uh, uh, when I'm talking about these these kind of parodies, I mean, it's the idea of people asking each other, you know, where are you from? And you know, and 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 if you're in Atlanta already, and certainly if you're there during the winter, you know, the farthest place that you can say you're from is like Egg Harbor Township or Brigantine, you know, like you're from over the bridge. But really, a lot of the you know, a lot of the answers is where you're from. Were you know increasingly uh, as I was down there during the course of the of the campaign of the previous presidential campaign, it was you know well um you know one quarter Irish and one quarter Dutch and you know and 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 half German, you know I just I thought this was sort of fascinating. I mean these are people who are you know two three generations removed from that immigrant experience, and and yet this was the way that they were constellating their identities now, and um and you know I I think I mean I'm certainly not the first person to to kind of point out that like you know toward the you know, deracination of a population or toward the fate of any ethnic tie uh, to a pre-immigration experience, uh, that's like a, that marks its last and most potent efflorescence. And that's the point at which, you know, in fact, these, um, uh, uh, in, the, in the 
in the rush to hold on to these disappearing glimmers of, of, of quote unquote authentic identity is when they become the most toxic right. and the most, um, and the most dangerous and, uh, in, in their decline. And, um, and, and certainly there was, uh, uh, there were elements of that, um, in, in, in Atlantic city where it was, um, the resentment of a lot of those populations for being lumped in with just general whiteness, you know, and, um, and, and a lot of that, uh, uh, resentment of, of, of so-called left-wing identity politics uh, forced them to the right. And, um, you know, because they felt that their own history of, uh, of, 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 of emigration wasn't being respected. And truthfully, a lot of the discussions um, could be reduced, uh, in my mind, to, uh, to a historical dispute about what is, the, what is the story of America, right? If you had to pick one, is it a story of immigration or is it a story of slavery? And, and, and in many ways, um, you know, and of course, you know, one should strive to make it both, you know, to the, but, 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 but in, in many ways, this became a zero-sum game in the minds of um, at least, you know, uh, Atlanta County electorate, you know, the Atlanta County electorate, who I would suppose would have voted totally against Trump for having um, completely gutted their town. Instead, he managed to make them forget his bankruptcies and his gutting of the town and, and appeal to their fears about um, being, quote-unquote, racially outnumbered. You know, I, the one thing you mentioned about Trump and uh, his uh, ability to get people to believe in, in sort of this, uh, in his uh, expertise, I guess, in a way, you make the, in the next essay, actually, which is called Notes on a Concession, you make some interesting comparisons between Donald Trump and Barack Obama, at least, I guess, in, in the way that you think a lot of Trump supporters would, right? Trump is this man of action where Obama is this sort of egghead and, and Trump is this guy from Queens and, you know, Obama's hanging out at Davos with the global elites. And, and maybe most mm-hmm. specifically, Trump being this massively successful businessman, he's made things and created jobs and, you know, generated economic prosperity, whereas, of course, you know, Obama's just been uh, a government worker, essentially, who's never made anything in his entire life. Uh, uh, where where do you think that that comparison goes off the rails or those comparisons? Well, I mean, I, I think it was more of a less of a comparison than a contrast, right? Okay, yeah. a, a, a quote unquote man of words and a quote unquote man of action, you know, when, when, when actually, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trump's actions are, are completely impotent and, 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 you know, and in many ways, Obama is a man of actions for better or worse, you know? And, and, and I think that, uh, uh, at the heart of that is 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 a classic American know nothingism. It's a it's a mistrust of of it's a mistrust of an elite. It's a mistrust of an intelligentsia, and uh, and it's really you know I mean this, this is a country founded on anti aristocratic or anti you know classist notions, and um and and really nothing has changed uh, uh, from the um, real kind of second great awakening religious revival. Of of no nothingism uh, until now, and I really see that the the, the idea of uh, education being a marker of wealth, um, you know, obviously still obtains. In fact, obtains more than ever with the price of college these days, and and with the amount of debt that people are, you know are bringing on themselves to, to attend. And so I think that there there is a great um, there is a great resentment, but also there's a great resentment of the of the of the bad faith that most people feel is inherent, or most of the Trump voters, let's say, uh, feels in, inherent in um, in intellectual life, you know. And 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 in a lot of ways, it's it's, it's the phrasing that uh, 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 that Trump is constantly undermining. I mean, his his ideas of repetition. Right and his constant, constant reverberation of certain phrases and certain uh, uh, and certain slogans are really—they're um, not just like neurolinguistic programming techniques to get people to repeat them. They—they—they they, they, they also point out um, because they lodge in memory the um, the sort of bad faith of traditional political rhetoric. Which is to say, you when when Trump is saying something, even when he's saying something that's quote unquote coded, it's never coded in a way that's like in any way uh, uh, difficult, and and everyone sort of knows exactly what he means, 
And, and it's, it's that, it's that idea of, I, I don't care if what you mean is positive or negative. I don't care if what you mean has a, you know, this political impact or this political impact. I just want to know what you mean. And, um, and I think that there is a, uh, that there is a, a kind of a sick admiration, you know, in that and, uh, a sick admiration that, that his followers have for that. And I also think that there's a, um, there's a strange shift uh, uh, especially with, if you look at some of the rhetoric regarding electoral college, which is what I talk about in that, in that essay, you know, the idea that like, um, it's the electoral college that puts them over the edge and, uh, 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 and not, you know, and not necessarily the popular vote. Right. And, and it's the electoral college that, that wins the presidency. And if you look at a lot of the rhetoric around the, uh, electoral college from Trump partisans, from Breitbart and from other, uh, and people farther afield, it's the idea of, you know, um, how do these people who are, you know, uh, almost in a in, in an authoritarian way, like you know, men of the soil, certainly not men of words, right, and not, and not men of any of much intellectual aspiration. How are they celebrating a victory that is essentially within a college that is um, that was founded to ensure that only um, the educated elite landowners voted, and that was actually instituted to ensure that the uh, that the ultimate say in the presidency was in the hands of people who. Uh, could read, had read pretty well and widely, and uh, and were competent to make a decision. I mean, it's it's the entire way, uh, it's that entire Alexander Hamilton idea of 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 you know the citizens from the mass who I'm going to screw up the quotes and doing it from memory, but are, are are the most likely to possess the information and discernment, right? And and so it 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 it, it was this um it was this dissonance. Uh, that I had in mind while writing that piece, it was sort of you win by the mechanism of the elites while condemning the elites, and and I wanted to kind of dig into the, the Hamiltonian notion uh, of of what does it mean to have this sort of discernment, and of what does this discernment consist, and to go back into you know some of the Federalist papers and some of you know some of Hamilton's uh, more minor writings and, and figure out like what is this or yearning for an aristocratic discernment in the heart of the revolution. And, and frankly, a lot of it has to do, uh, besides with, you know, Hamilton's own personality and biography, which I guess, you know, uh, is now famous from a musical. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it, you know, has to do with a, you know, congenital American mistrust of the crowd uh, that has always been a secret buried history. You know, I want to, I want to sort of, change gears a little bit, well, maybe radically, some people would say, because uh, another political essay that you write is uh, Exit Bernie, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll call it a, a personality study of a sort of, of Bernie Sanders and, and and his appeal, and Bernie Sanders is hardly uh, an anti-intellectual, know-nothing sort of person. I mean, you call him uh, somebody with uh, the rhetorical range of a CPA who spends his lunch break counting heart pills or jelly beans. Uh, I mean, I can't think of a more, on the surface at least, anti-Trump type of character, so I mean, and, and you could make the argument, certainly, that if not for the sort of uh, Clinton, uh, the Clinton uh, you know, decades of Clintons in the Democratic Party and their deep involvement, that Bernie Sanders could very well have been the nominee. So how do you explain Bernie Sanders appeal in this world that Donald Trump seems to be bestriding like a colossus? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, you know, I mean, the similarities between the two have been, have been well remarked upon, which is, which is like, you know, a, a similar kind of impatience and a bluntness. However, the difference is that, you know, Sanders is, 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 is the truth teller, or at least truthful, and, 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 you know, Trump is not. It's not necessarily the similarities that, that, that interests me. It was sort of the, um, it was the fact that Sanders had such a, uh, uh, um, you know, had such positive polling, right, among the very people who voted for Trump, and yet all the rhetoric surrounding Trump with regard to um, his, his supporters' racism and anti-Semitism. And it was the question that I wanted to ask with that essay, which is, was, you know, how could so many people who uh, later were in the tank for, for Trump, seemingly also in the tank for Bernie, and would have you know, voted for Bernie Sanders had he been the nominee, and yet there was this atmosphere uh, 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 that was either you know, real or, uh, or exaggerated by media, or, or, or some confluence of the two um, that, um, that, that, that put these people out, uh, uh, that put a lot of these Trump voters out as anti-Semites. I, I simply didn't believe it, you know? And uh, 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 I didn't believe 
that uh, the things that you saw at like the Charlottesville, right, uh, are things that um, that are really opinions that were deeply held by the entire uh, 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 the entirety of the people who voted for Donald Trump. But yet, I was interested in this, and and Sanders would have been the first Jewish president, and um, and I was particularly interested. I mean, I think it was in 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 the debate in Milwaukee. Where, where they asked Sanders a very direct question, which is to say, like, don't you feel bad uh, for running in this race? Don't you feel that you're in some way uh, thwarting history, meaning that you are, you know, blocking the election of the first female president of the United States? And, and Sanders has this very coy remark where he says, you know, from a historical point of view, somebody with my background, uh, somebody who spent his entire life taking on the big money interest, I think a Sanders victory would be of some historical accomplishment. And, and, you know, that to me was this ultimate coded utterance to be read to 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 um to be his own assertion that there is something important and 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 there is a milestone uh, uh to be marked with um with the election of the first Jewish president, but yet his 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 desire to never say that directly. And and that was the only moment or the, the only aspect of Sanders um entire life in which he is not forthright and blunt. And I'm including his, you know, his policies, his, 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 his policies on guns, which don't always make people on the left happy. You know, I'm including his some foreign policy ideas, which have certainly not made certain people on the left happy. Um, but the one thing that he has not been, that he has not been forthright about is, is, is essentially his relationship to, um, to at least an identity that, um, that many people tagged him with. Right. Uh, 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 and certainly that he was raised in. And I wanted to kind of bring up then a, a history of uh, democratic socialism, or if you want, just uh, you know, socialism, the American variety, um, uh, 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 as a corollary to Jewish history, because I thought that was um, something that, that is only spoken about in a tiny part of the academy and is not something that is, so it's not something that you know, the average voter knows, but also it's not something that, 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 that even in the academy is related to. Um, uh, uh, to contemporary, let's say, trends in, 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 in identity politics or the way in which people like perceive their life now. And so, so yeah, so a lot of that, a lot of that piece was sort of a history of, of where this, of where this socialism comes from, which in, 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 in my view comes from, uh, uh, an outgrowth of the attempt to deal with, um, the enlightenment era, uh, assimilation opportunities available to Jewry throughout Europe. And the idea of, you know, how does one become like the Gentiles? How does one become like the others? And it's really, beca- it, it, it's really through a process of making everyone like unto one another uh, through socialism, you know, and that, and that, and, and that, that is the ultimate sort of equalizing force uh, 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 and that the government sort of will grant that identity to everyone. And by doing so, will grant, will dissolve non-governmental identities, ethnicities, races. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful utopian kind of theory or hope but I, I, I wanted to place it within the context of Jewish history. Well, and, you know, another thing that, that you brought up, it's obviously closely related to this in the essay, is you point out something that I, I can't believe I didn't see at all, and I don't know how I feel, I don't know, sort of dense, uh, but that this that the first Jewish candidate to get this far was somebody who based his fundamental platform on economic issues. And, of course, that brings in, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, I would say, a very fraught area, uh, given, you know, the history and, and of anti-Semitism and beliefs about Jews and money and that sort of thing. Sure. And, and it was maybe it's because I'm a I'm a Midwesterner. I don't know. But it was an it was an angle that just never really even occurred to me before. But it was right there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the, you know, I, 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 I understand that it's something that's difficult for a lot of people to, to talk about. Right. But but the entire um, uh, the entire correlation of of of, of world jewelry with money and banking is, is, is this medieval concept of of, of of essentially limiting Jews to certain trades. You know, they can't own land. They can't uh, they, they can't participate in certain trades. So they're forced to become money lenders. And 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 there's no doubt that after you know centuries of this um, of this of this money lending occupation. In which, um, in which you know, Jews were demonized by the church, and were and 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 were sort of forced uh, because they were outside the church, they were allowed to lend you know money in certain ways that the church wouldn't allow, right? 
uh, from from people within its own uh, from within its own community. Uh, it, 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 after hundreds and hundreds of, of years of this of this um, of this essentially forced occupation with the Enlightenment, which is the first time you know uh, 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 you know in, in Austro-Hungary, for example, when 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 they begin getting the permission to move out of ghettos and stop wearing, you know, following the sumptuary laws of wearing certain clothing, but they can now you know, wear whatever clothing they want and they can live in parts of town that they previously couldn't live in before and they could attend university in larger numbers and they could, you know, so on and so forth. You know, one of the, the first major political outgrowths from this, um, you know, even before this, like before nascent Zionism is really this idea of, um, of, 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 of socialism and a lot of it founded on principles of economic justice because, of course, it becomes an anxiety uh, it becomes a, a culture-wide or an endemic culture anxiety, the relationship between Jews and money that within uh, 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 the Jewish people itself uh, feels that they need to come up with a response to, like on, on a subconscious level, you know, and, and that response um, emerges as socialism. And, and, and I don't say that that's a response that to in, in many ways, certainly in Marx's way, which was deeply self-hating, was a, was, was a, a way of um, proving to the people around him that he was the hated race. He was not one of the accursed people, and and I think that, that that understanding these things as like as symptoms of 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 um you know of, of historical trauma uh, are you know are pretty fascinating. In the same way that I think understanding the Sanders' own use of, of these things uh, 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 is is pretty fascinating. I mean, his whole idea of I forget what does he always say Denmark or you know what socialist country does he always point right. to? Yeah, uh-huh. you know to say that you know uh, you know I, I I think you know his his just like he has a very ahistorical model of, you know, the history of socialism in the United States uh, uh, or the history of world socialism, I think he has an ahistorical model of, of, of the history of democratic socialism in Europe. I mean, the truth is, is that the, the reason why, you know, a lot of those European countries who are, uh, who have, you know, democratic socialism today and the social welfare nets are straining under that, of course, uh, uh, was because, you know, America rebuilt these economies and a lot of that's being a social democrat after the, after the Second World War. And in a sense, America built, you know, the economies abroad that it couldn't build at home because they were building over there from scratch. And, and I think that, and I think when, when Sanders, and when Sanders sort of omits, you know, um, true history from his, you know, from his economic theories, I think, I think he, he radically oversimplifies at least the, um, you know, the, the processes by which people, you know, uh, meaning whole cultures reach certain consensuses, you know. Um, and I think he tries to find in, 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 in evolutionary socialism those same things that that that, that revolutionary socialism imposed at the, at the point of the gun, and I, I don't always think that those things are possible. Right. Yeah. That's that's a that's a like I said that's that's a, a connection that I just never really had made, which is what I found so fascinating about that particular essay. I, I, I want to close by uh, talking a little bit about well the the two essays that sort of bookend your collection. The first one is very short, uh, not even six pages, Distraction. And the other one is uh, Attention, A Short History, uh, in my copy, around 145 pages, much longer. And, you know, what I do when I prepare for interviews is I underline things and try to find connections and that sort of thing. And, And that's what I did when I was reading Attention. But it wasn't too long before I felt like well, kind of the way I felt when I was reading War, War and Peace for the first time, and, and I mean that in a good way, um, but I just felt just there was so much coming at me, and I just felt like the way to approach this essay was really to just kind of let it wash over me in a way, because there's so much going on. I mean, you, you take us through millennia in this in this essay, history, philosophy, invention, science, you know, and there's just so much packed in there. And so... Again, I don't necessarily have a question here, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why, you know, you chose that approach to to write about attention and maybe some of the conclusions that you came to in doing that, in writing that essay. Well, I just, you know, I think partially it's a generational thing. It's growing up and kind of being told, you know, what, why don't people, you know, read as much while they don't have the attention, you know, they're too distracted. And it's, and it's hearing these, and it's hearing these words and it's hearing these words that are, you know, used in contexts that are um, that are entirely technologically determined, which is to say, you know, the internet has made us more distracted. You know, I'm unable to pay attention because of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Like these 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 technological uh, definitions and valuations of our uh, of our attention span um, made me sort of ask what what this was because um, it seems very abstract to me. Um, you know, was this a, uh, a function? Was this a property? Was this a, a mode of correct behavior? 
Uh, and then when you go and, and look at it, it, you know, it becomes a word that's used. Um, I mean, it's used in countless ways throughout history, right? I mean, there's, there's a tension that is a, that is a spiritual principle, right? That is, that is a, like, a, that is certainly tied with ideas of like of moral rectitude. Um, there is a tension as a, uh, as a psychometric principle, meaning, you know, we're measuring your response times to things and the limitations of human perception, you know, in order to like, you know, best make machines that can help humans, you know, like look deeper into a cell or look deeper into the cosmos or at the same time make machines that, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that are like addiction devices and keep you, you know, and keep you riveted. Um, or, and, and so uh, it was all of these definitions of attention from Augustine, you know, to, uh, you know, through to William James, uh, the, 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 the rationalists to the occasionalists. It, 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 it was this, um, understanding that this idea meant so many different things to so many different people that, uh, in a way it's, it's bringing it back now is, is essentially like a reincarnation of this perennial word superstition. And I came to this idea that, that maybe attention is just this sort of superstition. It's a, it's a sort of, it's a quality that nobody can really precisely define except in its lack. And then you sort of advertise its lack and make everyone feel ashamed of lacking it. And then in, in order, in, in order to sell them things and, uh, or, or in order to exert social control. And a lot of that was seen through the history of a much younger word than attention, which is distraction. Uh, 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 you know, distraction is, 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 we're talking like, you know, 17th century, uh, uh as opposed to attention, which was, whose, whose roots go back much farther. And, uh, and distraction was always this, you know, all, all of these words that are negation, like distraction, you know, tend to be no, not, not only younger, but also tend to be words I found of, 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 of to a degree, uh, have these feelings or moods of social control. You know, uh, distraction was used uh, uh, essentially to talk about a, a rebellious or renegade populace that wouldn't be brought, that, that, that refuses to be brought in line. You sort of accuse them of being distracted in order to kind of bring them closer to your agenda and to make them and to and and and, and to sort of inculcate you know uh, better social behavior. And uh, you see a lot of that the distracted the distracted state of the colonies, you know, distracted the union on the eve of civil war. Um, and and it it is essentially someone who won't think um, correctly about the correct thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, uh, and because they're not thinking correctly about the correct thing. You know, you know, they are distracted. I mean, that that the the, the real first use of this was actually with women uh, during uh, witch burning episodes. You know, I mean, Salem being the most famous, it was it was you know the the, the women were distracted into witchcraft uh, was was one of the ways that that Hawthorne's ancestor uh, put it. Um, was uh, uh, the Hawthorne in the in his chronicle of Salem witch trials, and so the the notion of 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 attention sort of being this. Um, you know, being this non-entity that's really used to sort of um, uh, to create a, 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 an artificial scarcity in order to um, in order to guilt someone into seeking uh, 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 some remedy of control, and then distraction being this accusation of of, um, of ignoring the right or true principle and the right or true thinking about the right or true principle. Um, showed me that these, these, these words were actually um, subtle or maybe not so subtle, um, you know, mechanisms of, of, yeah, of, of social control. And I wanted to reinvestigate them that way because I, I think that, um, uh, that they are too easily, too often used as, um, as excuses to, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unable to pay attention. I'm too distracted. I think that, that by giving someone a word, you're giving them an excuse. I think they're too often too easily used as excuses from um, actually engaging with, um, with the true subjects that are out there and that we all have the capacity to, 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 to engage. Yeah, and like I said, it, it made me, I thought I had a pretty good grasp of attention and distraction, but it was from a very, what your essay made me realize, both of them, was from a very narrow sort of 21st century uh, uh, technocratic, if you will, scientific standpoint. And it, and it just really opened up uh, an entirely new way of looking at this concept to me, and, and really, the whole book was was full of things like that. And so, listeners, I, I I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great book, and and Joshua Cohen, I just want to thank you so much. I had I had a great time talking to you. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. 
Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.